Would you please open your Bibles, Matthew 21, 23 to 32. It has always been true of the Christian church that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and this table always sits here as a symbol of this. We do it every other week. And the preaching of the Word, and that's Scripture, Holy Scripture, the Bible, are at the center of Protestant worship with prayer, with singing praise to God. And so we have a sermon at the center of worship each week, and it's joined together with eating the Lord's Supper every other week. And this week we come to our time of studying the Word of God. We are going through the book of Matthew. Uh, We're nearing the end. We're in Matthew chapter 21. And this week we will read together Matthew 21, verses 23 to 32. When we read the Bible, we're not reading the words of man, but the word of God. And there are many who uh, scoff at this and who believe that this is just one among many holy books. But this is not just one among many holy books. This is the only book that is the divine revelation of God. Let us hear then his word, not ours. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, and it says he, it means Jesus. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not, but afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father, of his father? And they said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Now, we pick up this week where we left off last week in the middle of a day that had started with the disciples exclaiming at the withering of the fig tree. Can you believe it? Look at that. The fig tree's withered just like that. Wow. Unbelievable. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He's ridden on the donkey. The people have thrown the palm fronds and their cloaks on the ground in front of him in the triumphal entry. And each day Jesus has come into the city and now he's going out to Bethany about two miles outside of the city to spend the night, but then coming back in. The second day he goes in and he cleanses the temple and on the way in he's hungry and he sees the fig tree and he he goes over to eat and the fig tree has no fruit and so he curses the fig tree to being uh, fruitless forever and the fig tree shrivels up. And so now it's the third day. He's on his way into the city. The the, the disciples see the fig tree withered. We studied that last week and exclaim on it. And Jesus tells them that the withering of the fig tree is really nothing much at all, that such power and much more is always available to the sons of God when they pray with faith. And so he said to them, verse 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, But even if you say to this mountain, and it's probably the Mount of Olives that he's speaking about at the time, but if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So then Jesus and his disciples are off on their way again to the temple. 
Remember, they had been overnight in Bethany. They're on their way. The fig tree is somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem. They've left it behind, and they arrive at the temple, and what happens there? Well, in the temple, there was a thing called the Court of the Gentiles, and surrounding it were a bunch of columns with little gathering places. And so Jesus was probably in one of those little porticos off to the side of the Court of the Gentiles. He's in there teaching, and we read verse 23, that when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So now what is at the center of the controversy or the conflict here? Authority. Authority is right at the heart of the matter. And whose authority? Well, clearly Jesus' authority. That's at the center of the question. But also the authority of the chief priests and the elders. Although they don't say it explicitly. But then again, if you think about it, and if a preacher came into our church and he began to preach and everybody went off to him and I was left with nobody listening to me, And I was a little uptight about this, and I went to him and I said, Hey, I'm the authority here, not you. People are supposed to listen to me, not you. It would be a little gauche, wouldn't it? It would be a little bit immodest, a little bit direct. Just, It would be a little weird. It would be much better for me to go to him and say, Who are you? Who gave you authority? You know, it takes the attention off me a little and puts it on him, right? It's more tactful for me to say, who told you to come here? It's more tactful to me to say to him, do you have a call to ask him, have you been ordained to say to him, are you a member of Ohio Valley Presbytery? Do you have your masters of divinity? In other words, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? What are your credentials? Or my dad used to call the masters of divinity the union card. Do you have a union card? So these chief priests and elders are smooth customers, aren't they? They Don't talk about themselves at all. No bluster about who they are and what positions they hold. Just well-meant and sincere questions from some concerned and very pious Jews. Right? Well-meant and sincere questions. And it should be carefully noted that these religious leaders aren't faulting Jesus with teaching error. They've given up on that. They tried it and they failed. They've come after him with every gun, every piece of ammo they have. They came after him for his teaching. They tried to catch him in that. You know, whose wife will she be? And every time they tried to catch him in having wrong doctrine, Jesus snookered them. And they left embarrassed. So then they went after his practice. You know, how dare you heal anybody on the Sabbath? And again, Jesus wasted them. And they were never successful. So we're seeing them become successively more honest, aren't we? Because now what's going on is they don't bother going after his doctrine or practice. Now they stoop to the despicable technique that's always been used across church history to silence the preaching of true faith. And that is they go after his credentials. By what authority are you doing these things? Reform and revival, the godly preaching of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, have always been opposed by church leaders. And so how did Jesus respond? What was his answer? Well, we look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, I'll also tell you one thing, which if you tell me, I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from what source, from heaven or from men? Now, Jesus is not trying to be evasive here. People are evasive who are fearful of the consequences of truth. Jesus was not afraid of being truthful. Jesus was not trying to get himself out of a tough spot. Jesus is being very direct and very courageous here. 
He wasn't worried for his life, and he wasn't doing what he could to hold on to his life. He wasn't worried about offending the chief priests and elders. Instead, he was answering their question directly by pointing out to them that John the Baptist, too, had a problem with credentials. Everyone agreed that John the Baptist was a man sent from God. He was pious. He was holy. He was godly. He was courageous. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. No one would deny it. He was poor. He was poor. You ever notice how prominent that is in what is said about John the Baptist? I mean, when you hear a voice crying in the wilderness, you should stop and think, the wilderness? Not Hyde Park. Not Carmel. Not America. It was John the Baptist who had testified concerning Jesus Christ. In other words, you're looking for credentials. You tell me, the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world about me. The one who said that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That one. Was he from God or wasn't he? And then you realize what Jesus is doing. He's pointing to the man who gave him his credentials. I mean, if you could have John Newton say that you're a man of God and that people should listen to you. If if you could have... John Knox, if you could have Peter Waldo, if you could have Athanasius, if you could have Bernard of Clairvaux say, here is a man from God, listen to him. Here is a woman of God, listen to her. Would you take it? Yes. That's what John the Baptist had said about Jesus. And so Jesus says, now tell me, this is what he said about me, but he he didn't say that. He just said, tell me, this man, John the Baptist, was he from God or was he from the earth, the man? Really, what Jesus did is a perfect example of what the Apostle Peter commands in 1 Peter 3.15, where he says, always be prepared, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. But also Solomon's command in Proverbs 26.4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Jesus has them over a barrel, doesn't he? And does anyone think that had Jesus given them his credentials, they would have been satisfied and begun to support his work? It's not really about credentials, is it? You think about the... uh, all the cameramen that will be at the edge of the field at Super Bowl today. And you look at them, and what do they have hanging? Their credentials. They have a little string hanging around their neck, and then a little card that shows that they have been approved to get close to the gods of our land. If Jesus had been able to show a card, if he'd been standing there and he had press credentials, he had pharisaical credentials, he had scribe credentials, he had Sanhedrin credentials, would it have stopped what was going on here? Well, it never would have. They would not have been satisfied, and they would not have begun to support his work. Really, what they were asking him was a stupid, stupid, and an evil question. And for him to respond sincerely would have been naive Jesus knew their hearts and responded accordingly. And let there be no mistake. Had they acknowledged that he was a man sent from God whose name was John, the answer concerning our Lord Jesus, the Messiah of God, would have been equally clear. After all, John was the preacher of righteousness, the prophet of God, whose life calling was to prepare the way of the Lord our Lord. So how did the chief priests and elders respond to his question? Well, it's very interesting to notice that they did not search for the truth. They didn't look into their own hearts even. There was no honest reflection on the question Jesus had posed. It wasn't about that, was it? Verse 25 says, Jesus says, The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they what? They began reasoning among themselves, saying, 
If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. So it reminds you of these pictures of uh, parks in a big city where there's a bunch of men, typically, sitting at chess tables. And they're all trying to think far into the future and figure out what their opponent's going to do. And then take a move that's going to... Uh, it's going to oppose him best so that they will not. I mean, that's what's going on here with the chief priests and the elders. They're trying to anticipate what Jesus is going to do. They're trying to look at the people watching. They're looking at themselves, and nothing of it is about truth. It is all about them trying to take a position that will keep them from looking like idiots in front of everybody. They knew Jesus had placed them on the horns of a dilemma and that he'd hooked them. Squirming, they tried to find a way of escape, but they could find none, and they chose a strategic retreat. We look in verse 27, and we see that they answered Jesus, saying, We do not know. And so how did Jesus respond? Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We don't know. Well, then I'm not going to tell you what authority I have to do these things. Calvin says here, quote, All wicked men pretend to be desirous to learn, but shut the door on truth when they sense it is against their greedy interests. All wicked men pretend to be desirous to learn. Very, very good note to strike in Bloomington, where Indiana University is. All wicked men pretend to be desirous to learn. But the minute the truth comes out, it's opposed. Why? Because it opposes their sin. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus did not leave it at that. If he had left it at that, we would recognize that it was a very tense situation And we would have seen that uh, Jesus was not entirely kind. He was not entirely uh, tactful. He was not entirely uh, loving. He didn't really expect the best. He wasn't patient or gentle. He wasn't sincere. In other words, I'm pointing out that we would find many, many sins to accuse Jesus of if we had been there. None of us would think that he handled it in a righteous way, as evangelicals define righteousness. I hope you see that. For Jesus to say, you answer this question, I'll answer your question. That's not polite. You can try to make the case that in rabbinical habits at the time that it was often true that you would answer one question with another. But let's remember who's asking the questions here. These people were the religious leaders with all of the authority. And let me tell you, when you answer back the top authority of your nation in this way, you're not being respectful if you ask them a question instead of saying what they want you to say. But we could get over it, we could cope with it, without being too scandalized until we see what comes next. Jesus doesn't leave well enough alone here, does he? Here's what he does. Which of the two did the will of his father? Verse 31. The chief priests and elders respond, the first. Now, what are they responding to? Well, a little story that Jesus had told. He said, verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Now, the word behind the word regretted in Greek is a word that means to convert, to change, to repent. And so there's a spiritual hint behind this choosing to go ahead and do work here. He regretted it and he went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, what's going on here? Well, these religious leaders, by their question, had tried to present themselves as if they were truly concerned for the good of true religion 
and of the souls who hungered and thirsted after righteousness. But in reality, they did not care one bit about God or righteousness or even credentials, but rather what they cared about was their own reputation, their own leadership, their own wickedness, and their own sin and their own pride. That's what they cared about. The whole thing was a sham. And so Jesus put them in their place publicly, and at the end of the parable, he asked them which of the two did the will of his father, and they said the first. And Jesus then said this. Jesus said to them, now, really, you could get away with Jesus answering a question with a question, and, and, you, and, and you might be able to get away with the parable, but does he really have to apply it? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Anytime you read scripture, you should try to translate it in your own brain to your own life. And we really don't have tax collectors that we hate. You know, I've met IRS agents in my life, and, uh, you know, I haven't felt any hostility to them. You may not like paying taxes. You may believe that it's a violation of the constitutional rights we've been given. you, But really, nobody hates tax collectors today, right? Maybe some of you do. And really, I'm not sure that we really hate prostitutes. I mean, if somebody called our mother a prostitute, that would probably get us riled up. But these words don't carry the weight for us today, do they? What you have to do is you have to put your mind in their time and think of those people who were most hated, those people who were bywords of the most intense disgust and just utter uh, revulsion of the people, of the Jews. So today, who is the subject of our most intense disgust and utter hatred? Huh? <laughs> Personal injury lawyers and dentists. But not dentists out of any sense of their moral failures, just what they do to us. <laughs> Stephen is a dentist. <laughs> I think you're right. Personal injury lawyers for me are, hmm, yep. Who else? Who? Okay, poor, yeah, rednecks. Ah, I wouldn't say white, I wouldn't say rednecks, I'd say white trash. Yeah, Don? Rapists and drug dealers. Drug dealers without a doubt. I think meth addicts have to be there. People who live in double wides and make their living off of cooking meth, right? That's down there. Who else? Child molesters. You imagine Jesus saying that? I tell you, meth addicts and child molesters will enter the kingdom before you. Now we're beginning to feel this, aren't we? Also, fundamentalists. Now, the reason I'm saying that is not because any of you despise fundamentalists, but I want you to understand they are ground zero of what the university hates okay you go onto the campus and you say i'm a fundamentalist that might even trump child molester in fact it would when the campus holds the kinsey institute which is built on child molestation that's what that scholarship is built on all right and so here Jesus has the religious leaders of his time, and he compares them unfavorably to child molesters and to meth addicts. And he says that child molesters and meth addicts will get into the kingdom of God before they will. But that's not all he says. Look at it. For John, verse 32, came to you in the way of righteousness... In other words, Jesus is saying he's from God. 
right? The way of righteousness. He's from God. But John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And Jesus keeps going. You know, he keeps pressing. It's like, leave it alone. We've got the point. But then he says, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. You didn't even feel remorse. You weren't even shamed. You had meth addicts and child molesters believing and repenting, and you felt no shame to follow them. Now ask yourself, how much were these religious leaders committed to their own perquisites, to their own credentials, to their own pride, to their own money, to their own lusts? That when they saw the dregs of society repenting, it don't matter. I was reading in the Bible a couple of weeks ago, and I came to the account of Judas. After he betrays our Lord, what does he do? As a matter of fact, let's turn there. It's the end of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Look at this. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders, do we know these men? And by the way, I'm using the word men for men. (laughs) Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned... He felt what? He felt remorse. And returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. You know, everybody beats up on Judas. Judas will enter the kingdom of heaven before the scribes and the chief priests and the elders who looked at him at his time of remorse and said, what is that to us? And you know, this is an accurate description of religious leaders all through time. What's going on there? What's going on is that Judas is repenting of his act and he goes to those who are set apart by God to deal with people when they turn to God. People whose entire calling in life is to assure sinful men of the forgiveness of God. And when he comes to them needing the forgiveness of God, it is part of God's curse on Judas that he finds men who look at him and say, what is that to us? What is that to us? And immediately when I read this, I thought of the day when I went into the Presbyterian Church USA, the PCUSA, and I heard that they had a document about abortion that they had adopted. So I got the document and I read it. And in that document I read that they said abortion, this is quote, quote, abortion can be an act of faithfulness toward God, unquote. And I realized that those people who had gotten the union card of a Master's of Divinity had then been examined for ordination, had then received the call, had then had the call placed in their hands by presbytery, had then moved on to the call property, had then had a service of ordination and installation in which other men called by God came and laid hands on him and set him apart 
to pastoral ministry, that these men had written a document that told women and men who had killed their unborn children that what they had done could be, quote, an act of faithfulness before God. And I realized that these preachers, these pastors, these ministers of the Word and Sacrament were the inveterate, the unfailing enemies of the souls of those under their care. Because they robbed the souls under their care of repentance. Is there a more wicked act than robbing the sheep that you are to care for of repentance? That's what these chief priests and elders did with Judas. What is that to us? And when tax collectors and when prostitutes heard the gospel... When they were called to repent and they repented, we find Jesus saying that these men did not even feel remorse. Now, where do we go from here? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that the Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and that it is profitable. And I have to trust in that right now, that this is profitable to you. That there's a reason God wants you to know that the religious leaders at the time of Christ who had all the credentials were absolutely and completely heartless and cruel to the sheep that God had called them to care for. How would this be profitable to you to hear this? How would it be profitable? Well, number one, if I were to tell you that you needed to understand that the university is ground zero of the attack upon God in the world today, that could be profitable, right? It would be good for you to be on guard when you go into your next class at the university, right? You could even appreciate me for warning you. And then you would tell me, now, not everybody's bad, Tim. And I'd go, yeah, yeah, not everybody's bad. Right. But be careful. And you go, Okay, fair enough. I've received the caution and and I'll be careful. Right. Then if I were to tell you that religious studies, you have to be especially careful about. You'd say, well, not everybody in religious studies is bad, Tim. And I go, yeah, yeah, not everybody is bad. But be careful. And you'd say, "Okay, fair enough. I'll be careful. But what if I say to you that when you go into a church and hear the preaching of the Word, and that when you pick up books at a Christian bookstore, and when you pick up a magazine, and when you watch Trinity Broadcasting Network, you need to remember that in the church, vital faith has always been opposed by religious leaders. I don't think you're just going to say to me, well, no, Tim, not every preacher. I think what you're going to say to me is, you know, there is something severely imbalanced about that man. Uh, Because, of course, if he's saying that all through church history, vital religion has always been opposed by religious leaders. He must think that he doesn't oppose it. That he stands alone. That his church is better than other churches. That, 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 that we are the only ones that are faithful to Jesus Christ. And you know something? A man like that can't really be trusted. He has no sense of proportion. He is high thoughts of himself. He's not demonstrating self-critical capacity. Uh, Now, you won't be surprised to know I've been setting you up, right? I mean, honestly, be honest. You know that that's kind of how you think about me, right? I mean, you love me. You find me, somebody said yesterday, endearing. You know, but endearing the same way that a dog that occasionally leaves messes on the back deck is endearing. 
you know, if you're going to be around a messy preacher, he's a good messy preacher to be around. So all of you have gone and seen the movie Amazing Grace, right? All right, I knew all of you hadn't, but many of you have. How many of you have seen it? See, so look around here. Amazing Grace is the story of uh, William Wilberforce, who opposed, and actually William Pitt, um, who opposed slavery and fought his entire life for every social reform that liberals think they invented and accused Christians for opposing. <laughs> I won't even go into that one. <laughs> okay, and William Wilberforce uh, was a great hero, and his preacher was who? John Newton. So now, by accident, and you may ask me how by accident, I don't know. Somehow it showed up. I never bought it, but here it is. I have in my library a book by John Newton, published when he was alive, 1750. Okay? As a matter of fact, I'm going to pass it around to you. You can, you can look at a book published then, right? And it's not from the Lilly Library. And here's the title of this book. Listen to this. A review of ecclesiastical history. What does ecclesiastical mean? It means church, okay? A review of church history. A book on church history. So far as it concerns the progress, declensions, and revivals of evangelical doctrine and practice. This is a book on church history having to do with the progress, the declines, and the revivals. So in other words, when the church goes forward, when the church goes backward, and then when it goes forward again of evangelical doctrine and practice. In other words, of good news, gospel, uh, teaching, and living. Okay? A review of church history so far as it concerns the progress, the declensions, and the revivals of evangelical doctrine and practice. And you know books at that time had long titles, so I'm only half done. Here's the second half. The second half is with, now listen to this, a brief account brief account. Actually, just found something I'd never seen before. Some old piece of paper in there. Did you see that? With a brief account of the spirit and methods by which vital and experimental religion have been opposed in all ages of the church. Was John Newton dyspeptic? Did he get up on the wrong side of the bed? John Newton, having been a slaver, didn't have an accurate view of the world. He tended to see things negatively, right? You remember the picture in the movie of him sitting there, like mopping the floor, having tormented thoughts? Kind of makes him out to be a pathetic creature, doesn't it? And so here is the title of John Newton's book. Now I'm going to just read a little bit from his book. He says this. The man who, fond of his fancied attainments and scrupulous exactness in externals, despises all who will not conform to his rules, and challenges peculiar respect on account of his superior goodness, is a proud Pharisee. His zeal is dark, envious, and bitter. His obedience is partial and self-willed, and while he boasts of the knowledge of God, his heart rises with enmity at the grace of the gospel, which he boldly charges with opening a door to licentiousness. The modern Sadducee, like those of old, admits of a revelation, but then full of his own wisdom and importance, he arraigns even the revelation he seems to allow at the bar of his narrow judgment. And as the sublime doctrines of truth pass under his review, he affixes without hesitation the epithets of absurd, inconsistent, and blasphemous to whatever thwarts his pride, his prejudice, and his ignorance. <laughs> Yeah, I just had an elder look at me and say, that's me. So go ahead and break some pages. You'll have to look at it quickly, though, so everybody gets a chance. So now, let me ask, 
Jesus, what did he think of religious leaders of his time? He said that the, he said that the, uh, the, that the publicans, the tax collectors, the prostitutes would get into the kingdom of God before they would, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? When Jesus went out to get the disciples, did he choose any disciples who were elders and chief priests? Did he? What were they? Well, one of them was a tax collector. Okay? And so now we go through church history. Back in the Old Testament, when Hosea preached the word of God, was he embraced? Did the religious leaders say, wise man, how may we honor you? How about Ezekiel? Did they honor Ezekiel? How about Jeremiah? Did they honor Jeremiah? Huh? How about Amos? I am neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet. What's he saying? What's he saying? I have no credentials. Who said that? That's right. I have no credentials. And we work our way forward. How about Micah, Joel, Amos? How about John the Baptist? What about John the Baptist? Was John the Baptist embraced by the religious leaders? You remember when the religious leaders came to him to baptize him? Do you remember what he said to them? He said, you brood of vipers, what? Who told you to flee the wrath to come, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? Okay. And we go forward to Christ. Did they embrace Christ? No, they killed him. We go forward to Stephen. When Stephen preached righteousness, did they embrace that deacon? No. Then we go forward to Paul. We don't know how Paul survived, but he did. And then we go to Peter. By tradition, church history tells us that he was crucified hanging upside down. As a matter of fact, if you go in my office, you'll find a little piece of old wood my dad gave me in high school. And in that wood are um, horseshoe nails in the form of crosses, 11 of them. One upside down coming out of the bottom of the piece of wood. And then a little piece of silver glued onto the front of the wood. To Tim, with love, Dad, 1970. You imagine anybody getting a gift as good as that when he was a high school boy? <laughs> it's like, well, thanks, Dad. I thought I was going to get an Arsenal jersey. And what was it? Well, those of you that haven't caught on, it was all the disciples. One sold himself for for silver, and the other 11 of them, by church tradition, were martyrs. Peter, upside down. Why did Peter get hung upside down? Because he said he wasn't worthy to die the same way his master had. And then we go forward into church history. We look at Augustine. Was he embraced and welcomed? We look at Athanasius, Contramundum. Was he embraced by the religious leaders of his time? How about Jerome when he tried to get Rome to take out of Scripture the apocryphal books? Did they embrace him? How about Peter Waldo? What did they say to Peter Waldo? They excommunicated him. Why? Because he had the audacity to say that Scriptures should be available so everybody could read them. And he had the audacity when he was not ordained to preach. And then we go forward from Peter Waldo all through history. We can go right down the line. We can go to John Huss. We can go to Wycliffe. We can go to Calvin. We can go to Martin Luther. We can go to John Knox. And we keep working our way forward. Did they embrace them? What about Jonathan Edwards? Did they embrace him after 23, four years of faithful ministry? They fired him from his church. And what about today? How do people today treat Jonathan Edwards? You know that among evangelical reformed Presbyterian scholars, that there's a great smear against Edwards. And here's, here's how it works. Jonathan Edwards, you know who he is, right? Jonathan Edwards is being attacked today. Why? Well, Jonathan Edwards is being attacked because what they say is that he hung with people like the tenants 
other Presbyterian ministers, and Whitfield. Now, why would they attack George Whitfield? Why? Do you know why? Huh? Because he preached that he had, huh? That you had to be born again because he hung with Wesley. Why? Come on, people. You're getting it, but get it again. Absolutely. Credentials. What they say about him is that these people went into parishes that they had not been invited to go into and preached, and therefore they were undermining proper ecclesiastical authority. And why did they have to go into the fields and preach? Because they didn't have an invitation. Why didn't they have an invitation? Because across history, it has always been the case, John Newton tells us, that vital, experimental, true faith and repentance have been opposed in all ages in the church. Now, is that helpful to you? If I just say that today the same thing's happening, will you cut me some slack and let me say it? Please? Okay? The PCUSA says abortion, quote, can be an act of faithfulness before God. Is there any idiot here who doesn't understand what's going on there? No, we all know what's going on there. What about the PCA? What about the Evangelical Free Church? What about Church of the Good Shepherd? Would it be possible that our preacher and our elders would oppose vital religion today here? Absolutely. Who is the Good Shepherd? Good Shepherd. Church of the Good Shepherd. Who is the Good Shepherd? Who is it? The Good Shepherd is Jesus. My father, before he died, wrote a short essay giving advice as he was looking at death. You know one of the things he said in that essay? He said to preachers, he said, as soon as people are converted to Jesus Christ, try to get them to lose their dependence on you as quickly as possible. Move them on to maturity. Don't let a cult develop around you. Because that does no good to the sheep. It's good for you to have a preacher who leaves messes. Because then you're not tempted to put your faith in the elders or the preachers. If I tell you that Dave Carell yesterday rebuked me just like he rebuked his daughter, would you believe me? He did. We don't worship our preachers. We don't worship our denominations. We are not seduced by officialdom. We don't go into the Sistine Chapel and think, this must be Jesus. If anything, we go in the Sistine Chapel and we say, this must not be Jesus. (laughs) Come on. Your choice is the Pope or John Newton. You can't have them both. Do you understand that? And if you understand me saying that, then you also understand that with John Newton are all those excoriated, despised, treated as despicable, all those who have been poor, all those who have been, uh, and I'm not going to keep going, Um, I'm thinking things, but I won't say them, I just want you to know that does occasionally happen. You need to be on your guard about those who claim to speak for religion, for God, and for Jesus. You need to be on guard. Their books, their networks, their churches, everything about them. Jesus said that that day many will come to him and say, Lord, didn't I do miracles in your name? 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I have the, am I prophet? And even if I give my body up to be burnt, I have not love, I am nothing. Now, what's the second part of this? The second part of this is the gospel. The second part of this is that Jesus says that the tax collectors and that the prostitutes entered the kingdom of God. 
And so that's good news to us because we are tax collectors and prostitutes. We are filled with every vile thing. We are greedy. We are self-seeking. We are proud. We look down at our preachers, and as we do, we condemn ourselves. We are tax collectors and prostitutes. We are meth addicts, and we are child molesters. You and I are. That's what we are. And the Bible tells us that they repented. And so what this means is that God receives sinners. That he will not receive religious leaders. And that he does receive sinners. It seems to me then that a faithful church will always be kicking self-righteous people out the back door as publicans and child molesters and meth addicts come in the front door. Wouldn't that be how you would judge a true Christian church? And what that means is if you're here today and your heart is broken with your sin and you see that inside of you dwells no good thing, you consider yourself vile. Jesus has said, that he came to save sinners. And Jesus has also said that the publicans, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes were welcome. So if you're an adulterer and you're greedy, you're very proud, you're a child molester, you're a tax collector, you're a prostitute, you're a whore, you're a meth addict, you're goth, Jesus receives you. Repent. Now, one final thing. I'm going to read to you one verse from the book of Acts. Because it's a trip. In Acts chapter 15, verse 5, it says this. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed... So halfway through the book of Acts, there's this little parenthetical note saying, but some of the chief priests and elders, some of the religious leaders, comma, who had believed. What this shows us is that actually some of them did feel remorse and did decide to get on the train behind the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and they were saved. And so that means that even preachers and elders... PCUSA and PCA preachers, even people who are opposed to Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the tenants, can believe and can be saved. So there is hope for me. And I ask you to pray for me. That I will be saved. Let's pray.